the FCC is choosing not to come up with a solution like this by its own admission because it thinks it's hard work. And the amount of diversity we've lost, the amount of viewpoints we've lost, the amount of innovative programming options that we've lost, it can't even be measured anymore. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. And I'm Eric Klein. And we love radio. We care about who owns the radio stations. We care about who owns the radio stations because it tends to determine what is actually on those radio stations and how well it serves local communities and how well it serves uh, smaller communities or smaller constituencies within communities and what is actually propagated. Yeah, how much, how many local voices you can hear on your airwaves, especially when it comes to, you know, those pesky commercial airwaves, which um, a lot of us in the... uh, in the radio survivor uh, circles have written off for a generation. You know, if you love community radio, you probably don't much care for what's on the for-profit end or of you the might radio have dial. had a commercial station yeah. in your life or currently have one that you love and you saw disappear. Yeah. You know, but it's uh, been, it's been roughly 20 years since, since there were cool stations uh, been, as a general blanket. Yeah, 23 years. And, Yet so much has changed in our media environment, yeah. in, in, in our in our broadcast environment. And yet what has not changed is those ownership rules. It seems like they have not gotten with the times. And there's been no way for them to respond to the effects of consolidation or to the entry of new competitors. And one has to say, well, well, why is that? Is it is someone asleep at the wheel? And the answer is sorta. And we're going to dig into that today. There's a recent decision uh, made by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals based upon a challenge made to the FCC for their ownership rules. The things that they have proposed to do to change media ownership rules, challenged in court, went to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. It's been there for a long time. A generation. It's been there for 15 years. Not quite a generation, but 15 years. And the Third Circuit Court of Appeals... Just made another ruling. So when this happens, we have one man we turn to. His name is Professor Christopher Terry at the University of Minnesota, where he teaches media law. Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota. Welcome back to Radio Survivor. We had some pretty big news come to us from the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on September 23rd. Um, and it does regard the FCC and something uh, you've been following a long time and we've been following along with you. What happened? Well, we have our fourth of four decisions from the Third Circuit dealing with the FCC's media ownership policy. And uh, like the other three, it went pretty poorly for the FCC. <laughs> and so media ownership for, for, for newbies is, uh, you know, means uh, how, many, how many entities can control how much of our airwaves. Yeah, it's that's the rules, but the the policy itself is a much larger structure. It's basically how our media system operates, how it makes money, how it's laid out, how content is delivered and made. All of those things are relevant to media ownership policy. Mm-hmm. And what we have here is the FCC's now fourth uh, fourth in a row loss in court on that policy, stretching back all the way to 2004 and arguably basically 
every policy it's had since 1996's Telecommunications Act was handed down has basically not gone anywhere when it's come under judicial review. And what is it that the FCC proposes to do, wants to do, that the court has found objectionable? Well, this time, that's actually a much longer story than it's been in the past. So to tell where we, what we were just looking at, we have to go back a few years, all the way back to 2011. In 2011, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals did a review, then the second review, on the FCC's media ownership policy, uh, which had been overturned in 2004. The FCC had had another set of hearings that ran from 2006 to early 2008. And then in 2011, those rules went to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals after a long battle about moving the case to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. But in 2011, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals told the FCC that its media ownership policy would be frozen, essentially unenforceable, beyond the limits specified by Congress, until the FCC brought back a workable plan for women and minorities. And that was a real punch to the gut to the FCC. And after 2011, the FCC did really just the minimal amount of rulemaking and rule review. And eventually, both people who want less regulation, sort of industry folks, and people who want more regulation, the lead plaintiffs and other citizen petitioners, they kind of agreed to disagree and they dragged the FCC back into court in April of 2016. The FCC had not done anything meaningful in the intervening five years. And although the two sides radically disagreed about what they wanted to happen, they made the FCC, they sort of agreed to make the FCC do something at all. That case went very, very badly for the FCC. And we talked about that when it happened uh, a couple of years back now. In response to that, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals ordered the FCC to do something, make a decision by the end of 2016. At the time, Tom Wheeler was still chairman of the FCC. We were still in the Obama administration. And in August of that year, just a couple months after the decision came out, the FCC sort of said, you know what, we're not going to do anything. Our decision is literally nothing. We are going to do nothing. And the same people went back to court to challenge that. But before that case went to trial, Donald Trump was elected. Ajit Pai was promoted to chairman of the FCC. The membership of the FCC changed hands a little bit and swung different ideologically. And then in November of 2017, the FCC issued a new media ownership owner with order with very little uh, to proceed. It was basically just a new order that just kind of came out of nowhere. And it came out of nowhere about the same time the FCC started monkeying with the net neutrality rules. So it didn't get quite as much press as it had in the past. But those rules, this reconsideration as it was, basically overturned everything the FCC had ever decided on media ownership going back better than 15 years. So that case, that order, the reconsideration order, people tried to get a stay on it. Uh, They tried to limit its implementation while the litigation was going on. The Third Circuit kind of refused to do that, wanted to see where the chips fell. 
And in the intervening time, the FCC finally got around to releasing its minority ownership policy. It's called an incubator policy. And I've written extensively about what a joke this thing was. And we talked about it on the show a while back. Yeah, it's like a buzzword that it's like an old buzzword now. The incubator uh, concept. So what we were looking at, what went to court back over the summer, and we talked about it at the time, was that the FCC was uh, getting its getting reviewed. The court was sort of mom and popping it and looking at the decision in 2016, which the FCC had basically overturned with its decision in 2017 and the incubator policy. And the result of that oral argument, which went very, very poorly for the FCC back in June, and then the decision which came out on the 23rd basically sent the FCC entirely back to the drawing board. Rules that the court had previously sort of given tacit approval to, including the newspaper broadcast cross-ownership rule, which has been on the book since 1975, the court said you can't overturn that one either. And again, the issue is two-pronged. One, the FCC has absolutely no evidence to support its rulemaking decisions. There's no evidence at all that it will actually work. And two, the court didn't buy that the eligible entity program embedded in the incubator program would actually increase ownership by women or minorities in any meaningful way, something the FCC has defied the Third Circuit on now three times. Now, administrative law isn't sort of like a courtroom drama, right? It's not really exciting. There's not a prosecutor up there tearing some lying witness arm from arm. But the language that the Third Circuit used in the decision that came out on the 23rd was pretty graphic. And very, very critical of the FCC. Very critical. And it's basically one step short of what the Third Circuit has threatened to do in the past, which is essentially tear down the entire structure of media ownership. So that's how we got here. And it's important for people to understand who followed this, and I, I recognize that I follow this a lot closer than most people do, that what has really happened here is that the Third Circuit has sent the FCC back to the drawing board about the equal of where we would have found ourselves between maybe 2000 and 2002. And I it's think that I want to I want to take a step back at this particular moment here, Chris, because I think calling out these dates, we we could almost lose ourselves in it. But I think it's important to to uh, to to show some mile markers here. When you say that we're basically back to two thousand two thousand two, what you're saying is that that is just somewhere between four and six years after the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which radically rewrote media ownership rules, specifically for broadcast, where we saw the national cap on the number of radio stations a company could own lifted entirely, where we saw the limits for uh, market ownership lifted, raised up, where we saw limits on television ownership raised up, right? And 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 it was it is really uh we, we still feel the reverberations today, as we mentioned just a little bit earlier. Yeah, it's I and, mean, it's, and, it's an old saw on Radio Survivor and around these parts, but it's it's the it's the moment when Gen X lost radio and, and it all got homogenous and and boring and mom and pop radio stations sort of disappeared and everything became a little bit more 
corporate. Right. And and as part of that, the FCC was ordered to uh, review at that time biannually, biennially, uh, media ownership rules to adjust them. Right. In order to sort of react to the market to compensate, you know, it's sort of like uh, riding the throttle, if you will. And what has happened, what I hear and what I see here is 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 that it really hasn't happened, is that, you know, if we're if if nothing substantial has changed since uh, 2002, in effect, um, there's a whole lot of it's a whole lot of smoke and almost no fire, a whole lot of friction but no actual work is done here, Chris. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Well, I guess it depends on your point of view. <laughs> um, it's not that nothing has been done. A lot has been done, but the FCC has failed at every turn. It literally has failed. Part of its obligation under the 1996 Telecommunications Act is to adjust rules as necessary. Right. It has failed to do that at every point. And the rules that are on the book are exactly the same as they were in 1996, except for the one rule that Congress intervened in during this process and changed just a little bit, which was the television, the local or the national television ownership rule, excuse me, which they raised the cap from 35 to 39 percent of the national audience to accommodate some of the Fox owned and operated stations. And, you know, it was just sort of a gentleman's agreement to move it to uh, when Fox acquired the New World Communication stations, they were just over the cap because a couple of those stations were in really big markets. But I mean, other than that, the rules that we're talking about today are exactly the same as they were in 1996 when Congress gave the FCC its instructions on media ownership. And, and can FCC, I, I want to go out on a limb here, but maybe I'm not going out on a limb, but it, you know, my reading of it, and I followed it the entire time, not as closely as you, but that each of these sets of rules that the FCC has proposed along this time to make these adjustments to media ownership, they, they seem to me have been mostly coming up during, uh, in air quotes, free market oriented FCC administrations and national administrations, Republican administrations. They've been pushing towards further loosening ownership restrictions. And what they keep getting called on, you know, whether it's during, whether it's sort of uh, George W. Bush era administration or whether it's now a Trump era administration, what they keep getting called on is if you're going to make these changes, we need some data and facts to back them up to justify why further media ownership reduction limit reduction limits why further consolidation for all intents and purposes as an outcome why that would benefit consumers why that would benefit uh, the industry and and then of course as a corollary why that would benefit women and minorities is is that is that reading at all on top of it yeah no it's uh it's <laughs> that's about as accurate accurate as it gets. Look, the FCC has to consider rules in terms of economic competition and the public interest. It's still required to do that. It cannot square that circle in any meaningful way with any evidence that suggests that the policy is working, will work, or has worked. In fact, by most assessments, 
it has not produced any of the effects that we were promised. And and, and what and what would those effects be as as a as um, a media consumer and user? What would what would someone perceive as some of the effects that were promised here? What is it that that what is the great wonderland that happens uh, when uh, further deregulation happens? Sure. Well, the idea was is that we could reduce the cost to operate media companies. They could make more money and still provide, put in more resources to give us better programming options. And really, none of those things have happened. In real terms, I mean, the companies that the 1996 Telecommunications Act really created are companies like Clear Channel and Cumulus, right? Those were the two companies that leaped out to the front of the pack when it came to the changes in the ownership rules. And the ashes of those two companies are still smoldering just a little bit, but they're largely gone because the economic benefit never really materialized because the cost of media properties went up so high. And the only way that they could afford to pay for the stations that they bought was to reduce programming options to the barest and cheapest of minimums. And that's the part of the FCC's problem, right? The, the policy itself was implemented poorly, right? The FCC could have done this on a slower, more incremental approach and had a better idea of what, what to do and the effects of but it. But instead they just they opened just, up the floodgates, right? No, they just, they leaped in. And to be fair, it was a Democratic administration when they did it, right? Sure. This is this cross across both both parties. They leaped in head first. They were super excited about it, the near sort of neoliberal approach to economics. And it just went downhill. It, it's just been going downhill ever since. But what's problematic is that it's basically paralyzed now and has been for literally more than 15 years. The FCC has conducted seven rule reviews since 1996. They were two-year reviews in 1998, 2000, and 2002. And then after 2002, they were extended to four years. So they did one in 2006. They never finished the one from 2010. They basically never finished the one from 2014. And they launched one on literally the last possible day that they could in 2018. That one is still open. And what the Third Circuit told the FCC on the 23rd of this month was that you have to do this by the time that one's done. Now, that's a pretty stringent order in terms of administrative law, but it is also what the FCC was ordered to do in 2011 and again in 2016. Both times the FCC has not done it. You know, so... What, what kind of boggles the mind to me is that this seems Sisyphusian here uh, to to continuously um, propose changes, the FCC to propose changes to further deregulate media ownership, only to have them swatted down one after another by the Third Circuit for the same reasons, right? So it's not as if these are they're making it doesn't ever seem like they're they're really going back and re-strategizing uh so much as making minor tweaks and throwing the same things up and letting them get bounced back and and it it begs the question to me why <laughs> like you know what you know what what is the purpose um of continuously doing this 
is there some sort of other outcome or or strategy at work here that that isn't obvious at the surface? Well, at some level, the FCC does this because they have to. The law says that they have to do this on a periodic basis. So is this like a 13-year-old who does the worst possible job uh, washing the dishes so that you know they they that their parents just throw up their hand to say fine we're not going to make you do it well i mean i think the fcc would really like it if mom and dad at the third circuit eventually said that to them but that's not going to happen there is something that is different this time and it probably bears mention at this point whenever the fcc has lost in the past they've been very unhappy about the loss obviously but they sort of just kind of took their lumps and kind of slinked away and pretended to do stuff for a little while and then realized that they weren't going to get away with doing nothing. So they did something and sort of reset the cycle. This time, something else happened. Immediately after the decision came down on Monday, and it came down pretty quick from the Third Circuit this time. It's not a long opinion, by the way. It's fairly short. The three majority commissioners, Chairman Ajit Pai, uh, Commissioner Carr, and Commissioner Mike O'Reilly, basically say they're going all in on an appeal. Now, that's different than what they've tried in the past. They've sort of just taken their lumps and walked away. But Commissioner O'Reilly especially was quite hostile in the release that he had on Monday night. Monday the 23rd that night, he, he, he was, the language is pretty aggressive for him. He's sort of the nerdy one on the commission. And it looks like the FCC, rather than go do the dishes again, as you suggest, is going to go break the dishes in an effort to hope that they don't ever have to wash the dishes and, again. And by appeal, that means they want to appeal to the full circuit or the Supreme Court? Yeah, they... Well, that's the next stop is the full circuit, but I'm hoping they're eventually hoping that this will go to the Supreme Court. Now, and and just, a, just so that, people understand, it was a three-judge panel, right, that that made the decision for the Third Circuit Court of Appeals uh, thus far. That's basically heard heard yeah, this case so far. It's It's been the same panel the whole time, and again, in this order, which came out on the 23rd, uh, Judge Ambrose is sort of like, here we go again, you know, <laughs> we're still here. And e- even the last line in the decision is something about, well, we're sure this isn't over yet. We'll see you next time. <laughs> you know, so, but the FCC has never, never really mounted a serious appeal of any of the Third Circuit decisions. It's sort of just taken its lumps and walked away. And it appears to be ready to make an aggressive push. So the first stop in an appellate uh, review is the three-judge panel. The second step is an appeal to the full panel, which would mean all the judges on the Third Circuit would hear the case. Then, uh, depending on how that goes, you would go to the Supreme Court. Now, this is going to get a bit in the weeds, and I'm going to apologize for that in advance. But there's very little issue that the FCC has here that's appealable. They There's really not some sort of fundamental change in what's occurred here that suddenly makes it uh, an issue that would be ripe to go up the food chain, including up to and including the Supreme Court. There's really no change. The decision that came out on the 23rd looks exactly like the one that came out in June of 2004. 
which says that your decision making isn't rational. Go back and do it again. Come back here when you're ready to show us your homework. So I'm not really sure where the FCC is thinking that there's something different about the decision which came out, uh, the most recent decision which came out, compared to the other ones. But I do have a theory. I do have a theory about why they're taking it so aggressively this time. And it, it kind of fits in with the larger picture. You want to take a guess what my, my suggestion is going to be here? No, I have no idea, actually. <laughs> okay. My belief is that if they appeal this decision, that will tie the process up for a very long period of time while that works its way through the court, and they won't have to complete the required 2018 review. So if they take it upstairs, that will take a significant amount of time. And then if they don't like how that comes out, they'll go to the Supreme Court, which will add time onto it. In the meantime, they won't have to make any decisions and they can just stick this in a folder, lock it up in the file cabinet and just wait for it to work itself out. It's essentially to use your dish metaphor it would be like taking the dishes out in the garage, leaving them on the shelf until somebody found them and then you'd have to watch and buying some paper plates in the process and and christopher this review that you're referring to that the fcc is required to do again is um what it's it's like a a review of how media ownership is going in the united states it's it takes the rules and it it sort of the way it's unique in administrative law uh it's section 202h it's a really obscure passage in the telecommunications act but it basically requires that the fcc every four years, take a look at all of the rules it has on a book in terms of media ownership mm. and determine whether or not they're needed. Now, why, why that's unique in administrative law is they basically have to treat the rule as if it's a new rule that they want to pass. When an administrative agency does that, when they have a new regulation that they want to pass, they have to have some form of empirical evidence that supports the decision to do that. And what the FCC has to do is essentially treat rules that are already on the books as if they're new. It's actually not easy for the FCC to do, but they're also not making any of the effort to actually do it either. So it's it's a double-edged sword. But there's plenty of precedent for the FCC sort of using the paper plates to use the metaphor that you just went with there. And it's exactly what the FCC did after 2011. Remember that we only got to where we are today Because after five years of foot dragging, the FCC got dragged into court by both sides who can't agree on anything. And that would have been in the Obama era as well. That was a Democratic uh, administration. Right. So the FCC and, and some of the commissioners that are on the commission now were part of the commission then. I mean, O'Reilly was on the commission in 2016. Um, I don't, Carr wasn't, but Pye was. And I even think Rosenworcel was yeah, think when so. this when, this, when uh, uh, this came up last time. But here we are, right? Five years went by. They made no meaningful effort on media ownership because they just didn't really want to deal with it. Because it's as they and by the FCC's own admission, it's actually pretty hard work to do. They they just punted, and they had to get dragged into court, kicking and screaming. By two, uh, by two sets of petitioners who have literally nothing in common. I mean, they, the, the deregulatory petitioners that represent the industry 
and the lead plaintiffs, the Prometheus group that are the citizen petitioners, they absolutely agree on nothing. But they forced the FCC to act. That started the chain of events that led to this most recent decision. And that was based on a, the FCC after basically five and a half years saying, well, we don't think we need to change anything. It would be a lot of work to come up with any reason to, to actually do that. So we're just going to not change anything. So that's how we got to where we are. And the only way the FCC has any benefit from trying to appeal this instead of going back to the drawing board and starting over is to delay the process for a fair amount of time, which is what will happen if they pull the appeal. And the voice you just heard is Assistant Professor of Media Law, Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota. We asked Chris to come on regularly when uh, there are updates in the world of the Federal Communications Commission and the laws and policies that greatly affect what we're able to receive in our media environment, as well as what we're able to transmit and you are listening to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reesmandel, and with me here is Eric Klein. So, Chris, you know, for all of this back and forth, that kind of amounts to nothing, right? As we mentioned a moment or two ago, effectively, that means, you know, zero progress has been made. The media ownership structures that existed in the year 2000 are still basically what what prevail in in our i think arguably very different and and uh changed media environment i'm gonna i'm just gonna say that this is why radio corporate radio is still extremely boring in the year 2019 uh maybe even just the same boring as it was in the year well 2000. And, and and one thing i wanted i, I we we mentioned early on and I want to circle back to is is ownership of media by women and minorities because that was a specific thing that uh, is part of the decision of the Third Circuit Court on September 23rd of this year um, because the FCC was asked to address that the, the fact that uh, twice twice asked to address it right the fact that in fact minority and women ownership, arguably has gone down and been reduced in 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 the last uh 20 some years rather than increased. And again, remind me why, I mean, I know why ethically or morally why I care about media ownership and whether or not uh people of color or women own radio stations, but why does the FCC have to care? Well, part of what happened when the consolidation that followed the 1996 Telecommunications Act that occurred was a lot of people who were women and minorities ended up selling their stations to the sort of larger groups because they couldn't compete with them. Yeah. And they just they sort of sold out. But in the process, what ended up happening is that women and minorities ended up controlling a very small percentage of the media in this country. It was a sort of a side effect. It wasn't the intent. It just kind of happened that way. And the FCC has had ownership enhancements to favor underrepresented groups, women, minorities, other groups, essentially since the 1950s. And it's had a variety of policies over time. So it, the reason it has to do something about it now is it, it was told to do so. Not once, not twice, but now three times. By the courts. Essentially, you have to solve this unsolvable problem. Now, the FCC refuses to solve that problem because it's actually kind of hard work. 
And I don't want to, we could do a separate episode on how hard a work it is. But the basic problem was, is that the FCC had a functional minority ownership policy in the late 1970s and early 1980s that gave an enhancement to a candidate who was going to own a station, who wanted a license, if they were a woman or a minority. And what happened was, is in a case that didn't have anything to do with broadcasting, Adirond Constructors, the uh, the Supreme Court changed the standard on uh, quota systems for the federal government. And in the process, they invalidated the program that the FCC had been using at the time. Hmm. So the FCC doesn't want to fight the court on that. It has a pretty good argument that broadcasting has never been treated under the highest standard of review. But the FCC doesn't like that argument because it, it also involves them having to admit that their decision to get rid of things like the fairness doctrine was a bad idea. (laughs) But in the process, what they've tried to do, and they've tried to do it three times in various ways now, is come up with a program that says women and minorities will get stations if we only consider economics in our equation for how we give out stations. So if we just create a bunch of new small owners, exactly the people the FCC eliminated when it implemented the 1996 Telecommunications Act, and we just created that, well, at least some of the stations would go to women and minorities. And their most recent plan to do that was the incubator program. But the incubator program had a poison pill in it. It was designed to get stations into the hands of smaller owners with the hope that women and minorities would would be the people who got those stations. But there was no requirement that that was the way. But that how that worked was it would take a station from an existing group. So let's say iHeartMedia owned six stations in a market. One of them was, you know, sort of a lower rated, maybe a lower power AM station, maybe a C-class AM, something like that. And it would give that station to women, to an incubator startup, sort of a small business startup, and then sort of play big brother to it while it was getting started. And in return for that, the FCC would grant the company that handed the station over a waiver for a station in another market that would allow them to consolidate above the limits specified by Congress. That's a, that was a problem when they, they implemented I wrote on it extensively when the plan was announced in August of 2018. It's sort of like and, I'm imagining, you know, to me, you know, to throw another metaphor into the mix, I'm, I'm imagining a balance scale, right? And on, on one side you have you have 50 marbles and it's very heavily weighted, and the other side you have you have you know 10 marbles. And the FCC is saying, okay, so in the process we'll we'll take one marble from the 50 side and put it on the 10 side. But then we'll take one from the 10 side and put it on the 50 side, right? It's like and they'll take. It's not just that they'll take one from the 10 side. They'll take the biggest marble from the 10 side and move it back over to the 50 side. And it wouldn't be 10 marbles. It might be two or three, Mm. right? They'd be taking from the side that had two or three marbles, move one over from the 50 side, the smallest marble on the 50 side. And then they would, uh, in return, they would take the biggest marble they could find on the other side and transfer it over. You know, it was, it was an outrage on so many levels and the Third Circuit rightly basically tore it limb from limb. Now, that's, as you know, I'm no fan of how the FCC has handled this for a long time. 
But I've had a lot of discussions with people on the other side of the aisle since the decision came down. And I, I really come around to a point I've had for a long time. It's really sad that the FCC has not solved this problem. Because in the meantime, women own less than 7% of broadcast stations in the United States. Collectively, minorities own just a fraction of that. And the FCC is choosing not to come up with a solution like this by its own admission because it thinks it's hard work. And the amount of diversity we've lost, the amount of viewpoints we've lost, the amount of innovative programming options that we've lost, it can't even be measured anymore. And now that the FCC is going to appeal this rather than go back to the drawing board and kind of come up with a new idea, it'll be years again before this problem is solved. Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb and be a pundit again and just say that this is the reason why podcasts are cool and radio is uncool in 2019, is that there's there's just nothing left. There's nothing interesting left in the radio industry as far as the terrestrial commercial FM airwaves go. And it's... It's only, you know, the internet itself didn't have to be the place where all of this new innovation in in programming had to originate. It could have come from anywhere. And uh, it's only because of these policies, or not only, but part of the reason why the radio is so boring is because it was... uh, it was damaged badly in in 1996, and it's just kind of. Yeah, but the radio that we have, the radio that we have now, is basically the radio we had when I worked for Clear Channel in the 90s, which is how I got interested in this issue in the first place. Mm-hmm. Really, really hasn't fundamentally changed. The the names have changed a little bit, but the structure is not radically different than it was. It's a, it took what was by far the best locally based, locally operated medium. And it made right. it into one that was managed and programmed and content was produced for on basically a wide region or national level. It, yeah. it, it's not what radio was ever intended to be, it was not how radio was designed, and it was not how radio thrived in the years that it was really powerful. Right, because radio— importantly, the loss—go ahead. Oh, just cause, because radio's superpower, as it was once taught to me by a guest I had on a radio show, is that— the person who is speaking into the microphones can be heard in their city, in their town, in their community, and they're talking about their town, city, and community in real time in the moment. So it's a it's an extremely shared live experience that builds uh, a community. Even commercial radio can build this community if it chose to do so, and it's sort of it's turned its back on that work. And did very effectively when I first yeah. started in radio in Milwaukee. Um, you know. The politicians in town, public figures, they hated it when our newsroom called them for something because they knew they were in trouble, right? <laughs> and as I worked, I mean, I, when I first started, it was a Hearst station, not exactly a small media company by any stretch of the imagination. But we had a vibrant news staff. We were really involved in the community, and we lost that character very quickly. Yeah. And it's really sad because, especially at the minority level, Women and minorities make up a huge percentage of the people who use radio on a weekly basis, especially minority groups. Latinos use radio at almost 90 to 95% of adults per week are turning into broadcast radio. Mm-hmm. Right? There's still an audience out there. There is still a local-focused audience out there to be had. And that programming is basically gone at this level. And I've argued that that should come back. But there's one more point to this story that we have to make today. 
And that is that the FCC, in addition to being spitting mad, by the FCC I mean the majority commissioners, being spitting mad when the decision came out. The next day, on the 24th, they basically gave the Third Circuit the middle finger. Hmm. And they released a TV ownership deal that required the rules that had been overturned the day before to be implemented. (laughs) Those rules were no longer valid when that order came out the next day. And it's not an insignificant amount of TV stations that uh, we're talking about there. It's, It's a merger for great TV. And the entire merger is based on a rule that wasn't valid when the order was released. And so effectively and, what's happened is that Gray TV will be allowed to grow bigger than it, than it, than it would otherwise be allowed to grow. Under. Well, we don't know. Okay. Uh, the rule on which it is, the decision was based was overturned the day before. The FCC was ordered, that that, ordered to understand that that rule was not enforceable anymore. So, and what was the rule? The rule was to loosen. Uh, uh, it's a top two TV prohibition. Okay. Uh, uh, top four prohibition on network stations in a television market, but the merger require would require that that be invalidated. And by top two, that's uh, top two stations in the market. Is that that's what yeah. I remember? Yeah. So it's it's yeah. it's a prohibition on somebody dominating a given television market by owning the most uh, popular stations. Per- currently and previously, you haven't. You had you weren't able to own any of any two stations in the top four in the market. So you could own one of the major network affiliates and then like an independent station in the same market, but you couldn't own any of the top four producing ratings producing stations in a market. Uh, along with another one, you could only own one of those four. And the Gray Deal, which came out the day after the rule was invalidated, very clearly a move by the majority to say they don't really like the third circuit very much was uh predicated on that rule having been overturned as was the case in the november 2017 uh decision the minority commissioners both starks and rosenworcel were very upset that that order came out on tuesday because they think it's the majority basically antagonizing the third circuit after a hard loss the day before and I mean, so what happens when a, a any, you know, arm of government, in this case, uh, the Federal Communications Commission, thumbs its nose at the courts, you know, and and enacts uh, a set of a policy decision that is otherwise based upon rules that have been annulled, that have been have been bounced back. Uh, I mean, what are the consequences there? What, what, are there any, or does this just go sort of go forward unless uh, a plaintiff, someone appears to challenge that decision and say, "Hey, wait a second. I mean, what? what I, I don't know. <laughs> what happens? I don't know. It's basically unprecedented. Yeah. I mean, for as for as antagonistic as the FCC has been, not just with the Third Circuit, but with courts in general over a long period of time, I'm not aware that they have ever done something quite this brazen before. They certainly haven't followed directives. I don't know that they've ever directly violated them quite so aggressively in the past. I'm, I'm certainly not aware that that was the case. If it's happened in the past, I'm not aware of that case and pretty much know about all of them. So that would be news to me. Hmm. Wow. Um, 
I I don't know. Uh, I suspect that that will be part of the forthcoming appeal, <laughs> whether or not the FCC gets to make its own determinations. But very clearly, the rule that that deal was ba- the order was based on was not valid at the time the order was released. Had it been released the Friday before instead of the Tuesday after, it would have been okay. But not the case as it happened. The Federal Communications Commission is shaping out to be one of the most rebellious teenagers in Washington, is what it seems like. We've gone from just mere recalcitrance I don't know if you want to, to say that. active acting out. <laughs> in in twenty nineteen in, in, in terms of this particular week. In terms of federal agencies. In terms of federal agencies. Still, you never know who who else is out there on a limb petulant. <laughs> I, I, we keep using this teenage metaphor. And of course, <laughs> I apologize to the teenagers that in the broke out before we went on the air today. Yeah, but I actually think the FCC has just become a crotchety old man. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I mean that sincerely, and I, I'm somebody who, you know, I care about these issues, and I'm very highly critical of the FCC. But I'd like to see the FCC resolve these issues in a positive way. Right. That's always what my criticism about. It's easy to stand here and sort of poke at the FCC. It's very bad at its job. But I would like to see the agency resolve this. This has been a longstanding problem. And and it it really hasn't changed fundamentally in 15 years. Yeah, that's a long time, even for government to resolve a problem that is of its own making. But that said, I mean, it, it's often been said about the FCC that it's a pretty good agency as things go that spends way too much time in court. Well, that might be true, but there's a corollary that goes with that. The FCC is is the person who makes it have to spend all that time in court. It's sort of like the guy who drinks too many beers all the time, keeps getting arrested for drinking too many beers, and keeps ending up you know, back with a disorderly conduct charge. I mean, the FCC makes a lot of decisions based on ideology. And not having evidence for the decision it makes, decisions it makes, excuse me, or ignoring evidence that suggests the decision that they're about to make, it's it's a problem beyond media ownership. So it's a problem that extends across multiple policies, certainly inherent in net neutrality, in which we are due for a decision very soon as well. So I don't know. I I don't think the teenage metaphor, I, although it is humorous, I don't think it's entirely accurate. I think we've we've sort of transcended that. I think we're more at the crotchety old man sort of saying, "Get off my lawn!" Right? And it's a very zeitgeisty. Kind of yeah, it's a very zeitgeisty change to uh, to transform the te- the, the petulant and uh, uh, the the petulant yeah, teenager it, into I mean, the it, it's, petulant know, uh, old. It old just man. seems childish to me at times, but I also understand. Have you seen you know, how old men behave sometimes? Uh, have I ever? Uh, trying not to, trying not not to become it, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but is. at the same time, no, I get it. I think that makes it makes a lot of sense. And we are talking with Professor Christopher Terry uh, from the University of Minnesota, where he's assistant professor of media law. We're talking about the FCC at another yet another time. The FCC has been back at court at the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. And on September 23rd, the Circuit Court of Appeals sent them packing yet again on media ownership uh, rules changes. And uh, one last thing we had on our agenda to talk about today, Chris, um, 
is about uh, Tribune Broadcasting. Uh, you know, people may recall that there was a proposed merger where uh, Sinclair Broadcasting uh, was going to uh, take over uh, Tribune Broadcasting's TV stations. Uh, I won't go through all of the uh, details of that, but it did not go forward for a number of different reasons. And at this point, there's a uh, there's a new buyer in town, a Next Star Broadcasting, and uh, that deal is going through. But you wanted to uh, you wanted to mention something else about that. Well, the 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 story is that the Tribune stations finally the deal finally went through. That's that was not unexpected with Nexstar. Nexstar didn't come with some of the baggage uh, that the Sinclair company had come with in in that deal. And structurally, Nexstar needed to fix fewer problems to comply with the rules than Sinclair would have. Clear a lot bigger company than Nexstar. But that that deal isn't that interesting. I mean, it's a big deal and it's not insignificant. But what was the most interesting part of what happened with the next star deal that came out on the 16th of September didn't have anything to do with the deal. It was a, a small section in the order approving the merger that changed the FCC's rules on who has standing to oppose media ownership decisions in the future. Now this is nerdy stuff. I won't lie, but what this is about is whether or not, Groups of petitioners, like those who've been challenging the FCC's media ownership rules since the beginning in the form of Prometheus Radio Project, would have standing to do so unless they had a person in their organization in each of the markets that would be affected by that deal. That's a change of a rule that's probably 70 years old. The FCC did this without any sort of comment or consideration of any kind, any sort of public notice. And frankly, it violates about three sections of the APA, the Administrative Procedure Act, on standing, as well as all of the existing precedent on standing legally. And I am very concerned that uh, when we talk about the next star deal, we won't really talk about the transfer of the stations. That will be sort of a footnote to this discussion going forward. But this idea that the FCC just changed who has the right to say anything to the FCC when they make a decision is a really, really big deal, and it's getting almost no attention. And so now, in order to say anything, and to be ta- and by say anything, mean be able to file uh, an opposition comment or something, um, and be taken seriously, have it be entered into the record, uh, you have to live in in a market where that it would be affected by the, the, the transfer of stations. Is that what I understand? That that's yes. the change. That and happened. this is, and this is interesting and important because these comments are not just like call your Senator and you know, they'll take note. These comments end up uh, in the official record and can actually be uh, an important part of the court proceedings. If yes, there are that's any, only, yeah. that's only half of what we're talking about mm-hmm. here. What the FCC is saying is, is that when they make a media ownership decision that's across multiple markets, that if you want to sue and you yeah. want to use an organization to do that, that organization has to have at least one aggrieved member, one injured member in each of the markets in which the deal oh, went fast. Oh, in each of them. So not just one of the markets, but in each no, of them. That, but that's that's what's different, right? Yeah. To show standing, you had to show that this the deal would have some effect on you. That's not hard in a, in a nationwide deal or in rules that would you know essentially change media markets anywhere in the United States. 
now for a deal like the one that was just passed or the one that had been proposed before to bring any sort of legal challenge to it that would actually have the weight of law, you would have had to have a collection of people in every single market in which that deal had some effect. And, and this again, and that is, practically speaking, and you would have to have that at the time the deal was made. And this is this has so, this has practical implications because there are organizations that have successfully challenged or at least attempted a challenge who were, you know, based in only one right. Location. So for instance, you know, Eric and I are here in Portland, Oregon, uh, where we have next star owned stations ostensibly and tribute owned stations uh, ostensibly affected by the deal. Um and if we had like a group of local citizens who opposed this this deal, uh, acting on their own. Radio as a, Survivor versus Nexstar. <laughs> let's not put Radio Survivor in this. <laughs> Concerned television consumers of Portland uh, were to want to oppose this based upon it affecting them, unless they also uh, join forces with concerned television watchers of Chicago and Detroit and Minneapolis and on down the line, they would have no standing. Right. You'd have no standing to challenge the decision at the FCC, and you'd have no standing in court to do so. Now, <laughs> there's only one reason to do that, and it's to shut off dissent, right? One of the problems the FCC has run into is the groups that have been most successful in opposing it are locally-based groups. Prometheus isn't a locally-based group, but they're just the lead petitioner. Some of the groups that have brought significant challenges to FCC policy, including things beyond broadcasting, have been locally-based groups. But even beyond that would be the competitors. A mom-and-pop operation or a small family-run operation for in a television market wouldn't be able to challenge the deal either because they'd only be based in the one market. Hmm. It's a quick way to keep the FCC out of court on big deals because there's very little way you could ever have an organization that would have people in all these places ahead of the deals being announced. Now, I don't think when the FCC handed down that change in standing, they realized that their entire media ownership structure was going to be overturned within a week. <laughs> but that standing issue might be bigger than the loss the FCC had the following week. Hmm. As big a deal as it is that the Prometheus uh, decision came down, the fourth of four, this little insignificant part, and it's literally only four paragraphs in a big order of proving this merger, are going to be precedent in a lot of future media ownership challenges. And the FCC has really undercut its opposition. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to go this far, but I, there's no better way to summarize it. It's basically a dictatorial ex executive decision. To say, unless you have somebody in every market where this is going to affect, you don't, you really don't have any authority to bring any sort of complaint about this. That's a big deal. It's yeah. a really big deal. And, and will that go and, unchallenged, do you think? No, uh, but I also don't know how you bring a challenge to it. Mm -hmm. Arguably, you would need to have standing under that, uh, under that rule now to have standing. Now, the, the best way to challenge it would be procedurally. The FCC didn't make any sort of suggestion that it was about to pass this. Right. Say that and it was improper and that it probably should have had its own rulemaking on its own. Don't you think? Clearly it should have. But again, standing is an important part of the issues The people challenging the FOSTA law right now are back in court recently on the standing issue, not even litigating whether or not FOSTA is constitutional or not, 
but just on whether or not they have the right to sue on FOSTA. Mm -hmm. And standing is a really important part in administrative law because you have to be able to show that the deal will affect you. The FCC's criteria for that is it will has to affect you in every single market in which this deal is occurring. Back in 96, that probably wouldn't have been a big deal because the mergers were done on a smaller, you know, sort of local merger level. But nowadays, they're national mergers, right? Yeah. There's, there's well, I can buy a house in-, in all the markets. You know, I can, I can get myself a mailing address. <laughs> You're going to have a lot of post office boxes. <laughs> have a whole lot of P.O. boxes. Well, Christopher Terry, professor of media law at the University of Minnesota, uh, thank you for helping us to grapple with and understand why our media ownership rules have not changed in 20-some years and how the FCC seems to be stacking the deck to try and make sure that continues to be the case for quite some time. I call it job security for me. You call it job security. And um, <laughs> we're still awaiting a decision on network neutrality, on, on rules that uh, help us keep a free and open internet. And so certainly when we, uh, when we hear the court's decision on that, uh, we'll want to come back and hear from you as well, Chris. Well, you got the number and anytime. I love being here. Well, thank you again to Dr. Christopher Terry for joining us on Radio Survivor to update us on the minutiae of the FCC. <laughs> the devil is in the details. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing because if you don't get into the minutiae, you wouldn't even talk about the Federal Communications Commission at all in 2019. Uh, not a lot has happened this year, and yet, and except yet it- it's all sort of the not happeningness is its it is activity is activity in and of itself it yeah. matters the gridlock uh, and let let's talk a little bit about a class of radio uh, that doesn't tend to come up uh, in discussions about media ownership and that's college radio at least not media ownership from the standpoint of federal regulations sometimes we talk about college radio based upon who owns the station well and i think i think it's fair that we, you know we don't want to unpack it at this moment at the end of today's episode but we've talked about how college radio doesn't exist in a vacuum that these stations are yeah. part of marketplaces where the value of the stations is determined by these rules that the FCC Indeed because they even though we talk them. about commercial radio um, the rules apply equally to non-commercial radio which in- includes both uh, which includes the ability to own lots and lots of yeah. non-commercial radio stations and there are entities out there um, that do own hundreds of non-commercial radio stations yeah and it could mean it could mean the sale of a beloved uh, it can be long long-standing college radio station could end up changing overnight because of FCC's uh, policy. But that's not why I bring it up. No. I bring it up to celebrate College Radio Day coming Hooray up for college October radio. 4th, which is just a few days from uh, this podcast uh, hitting uh, your player. Uh, go to collegeradio.org to learn more about College Radio Day. It's it's a day of celebrate College Radio stations. College Radio stations come together. They exchange programs. They have 24-hour streams. Um, it's a great day for you to go seek out the college stations on your radio dial if you aren't already a regular listener. And if in tragedy of tragedies, you don't have a local station in your dial, I'll bet you maybe your local college, uh, even community college, may have an internet station. Oh, yeah. There's lots and lots of internet stations, internet uh, college radio stations is to listen radio. to. radio. It is radio, and uh, we encourage you to go reacquaint yourself 
and then share that. Share that with a friend. Yeah. Share it on social media. You know, let folks know about the great college radio stations that are out there. And maybe you'll rediscover uh, something interesting, or maybe you'll discover something new and fresh there. Uh, you can learn much more at collegeradio.org. We covered a lot on today's program. We'll have show notes we'll, uh, and, and also uh, an article from Professor Terry uh, explaining more about everything we talked about with this recent FCC decision. will be up at radiosurvivor.com. You'll find show notes. Uh, this is episode number 213. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. We'd love to hear from you. What are your thoughts on all of this? Um are there did you have a favorite station that in 1995 <laughs> sounded a lot different than it did uh, five or, or years later? Or even a favorite station that in 2019 sounds different than it did in 2016. I mean, it, the, the effects are ongoing. It wasn't yeah. just one cataclysm. Um, it comes in waves. Let us know. Drop us a line. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We always love to hear from listeners, and we do answer. Even if it doesn't always show up on the show, we love to create this dialogue. And many of our guests are folks like Dr. Kevin Curran from uh, Arizona State University. Many of our guests are folks who dropped us a line to say, hey, I've, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what you're talking about. And to us, that sounds like a guest. Yeah. So podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Thanks for spending another hour with us. 